Good morning, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, December 17th, 2023, and my name is Melanie C., a recovered compulsive overeater, and I live in Canby, Oregon. The share ID numbers for Friday, December 15th, 2023 are the following. The 7 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study share ID number is 20941, 20,941. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study, the share ID number is 20942, 20,942. This morning, A Vision for You presents It's Never Too Late, But It's Later Than You Think. Step three and beyond. This presentation title suggests that we must get moving, call action. Where our hearts are, we will find our feet, not where our thoughts are, our hopes are, or our desires. It's where our feet are. The would have, should have, could have are dangerously fatal, twisted forms of thinking. Have you experienced that battle with the in-between decision, that discouragement of the debate with procrastination, that twisted thinking type thing that I will not regret putting this off because I still have time? Experiencing what the full armor of what that was like when the opportunity seemed to have slipped away. Then we tell ourselves, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. There will be other opportunities. Yet in this case, we are playing with our very lives. Well, I'll begin on Monday. Well, I'll begin on Monday. Well, I'll begin on the next Monday. And those Mondays come and go, don't they? Once we have accepted step one in our innermost selves, we have learned that anything that comes from our own resources, the totality of knowledge, skills, attitudes, personalities, talents, aptitudes, goals, or good intentions, any of those things that we draw from in our reliance upon ourselves will not solve our problem of compulsive overeating. Our human resources alone simply are not sufficient. Step one is the foundation stone of recovery, but we need to go further. Step two is a cornerstone laid upon that foundation, but we've got to go further. Now that we have admitted that we are powerless over food and we have come to believe, or at least became willing to believe, that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, we are here not only to decide, but to move in that direction and end that decision swiftly. We must find a way to turn our will and our lives over to the care of that higher power. We have a block before us, though, and it is called the block of the bondage of self. In our journey of recovery, every step we take is rooted in a decision. Each choice we make sets the stage for the next action. Within the 12-step process, the power of decision-making emerges as a fundamental principle for a successful and transformative life. The first two steps of this process are pivotal. They provide us with the essential insights and clarity needed to make informed and practical decisions. These decisions, in turn, shape our path forward in recovery, guiding us through each step with intention and purpose. In embracing this process, we learn that the art of decision-making is not just about choices. It's about shaping our destiny one step at a time. It is action. Today, we are here to explore a profoundly meaningful topic, one that resonates deeply with each of us in our spiritual journey of recovery. It's never too late, but it's later than you think. Step three, this theme emphasizing the urgency and the importance of decision-making and surrender 
align seamlessly with the principles of step three in our program and the opportunities for rebirth that the 12-step process presents to us. Our distinguished speaker today will delve into the crucial act of deciding, a step that signifies not just intention, but the investment of real change. She will shed light on the transformative power of surrender, a concept central to step three, which teaches us to make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. This step isn't about just about belief, it's about action, the willingness to let go of old selves and embrace that new path. It speaks about a real solution when action is taken upon this step. But our speaker will also address the urgency inherent in this decision. The truth is that while it's never too late to change, the time to act is always now. Inaction, after all, is a choice itself, isn't it? one that ensures nothing's gonna change. Our lives stand before us as a beacon of rebirth opportunities, a chance to be alive, vibrant, significant of purpose through growth, recovery, and the transformative journey we all are on. So as we listen to the presentation, let's remind ourselves of the power and the urgency of decision-making, the grace found in surrender, the endless possibilities that await us when we choose to act. Please join me in warmly welcoming our speaker this morning, a guiding light in the journey towards renewal and change in the 12-step process. A hearty, warm welcome to Cheryl A. Good morning, Cheryl. Well, good morning, Mel, and to everyone. Thank you so much for that introduction. I presume I can be heard, Mel? Loud and clear, yes. Great. Um, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be of service today and to learn with all of you on this topic. It's particularly close to my heart, which you'll hear as I, as I share today why. Um, the first part of it, it's never too late, but it's later than you think. Um, I'll share what that's about and particularly why I chose to do a deeper look at step three in relation to this um, because I think that is an incredibly misunderstood understood step, one that I've misunderstood in my recovery, and is the absolute linchpin for moving forward. But just, um, uh, uh, just one more moment on gratitude. I am so incredibly grateful for all of the service that everyone does, uh, for the founders of for you, um, for what all of us come together to do every single week to build a community of recovery. There's really nothing like it. And um, I, I could not be more grateful. So why it's never too late, but it's later than you think. Um, many years ago, I had uh, my first boss, his name was Tony. He's a brigadier general in the Army. He knew I was in a 12-step program, and he often made observations about what he thought was affecting my work based on this 12-step program that I was in. And he pulled me aside one day and he said, why is this, why is this such an important thing for you? Now that you've been in um, recovery for a while, can't, can't you just move on? And if you were to just try to explain to me just a few lines, he was a real bottom line guy. What does it really mean, this 12-step program? And I said to him at that point, I had like seconds 
because um, he was like, he, he, he didn't have a lot of time. And I said, I had heard this from a mentor of mine years before that. And I said, the program can be summed up like this. First of all, we all know that it can be summed up with clean house, um, uh, clean house, uh, that, that's our second. Um, trust God, clean house, and, and serve others. Um, but I, and I told him that, but I also said it can be summed up by never too late, but it's later than you think. And the paradox that we all have to live through, that we have a debilitating, that we have a um, crushing, and we have a fatal illness, it's never too late to treat it, but it's later than we think because every single day that we move on, it progresses, and it is fatal. It certainly can be, and it can make us insane, and it can destroy our lives. But it's never too late. We have a pathway of, set of 12 rungs up a ladder that bring us into light, and it's never too late. We know people in this program who've recovered starting in their 80s, and we know people who've recovered starting when they were in their teens, and everything in between. It's never too late. But every day we move forward, not in recovery, is a day we don't have in that sunlight. And I can tell you guys, and I'm sure that a lot of you can relate to this too, I don't want to live anymore. I don't want to live one minute, one day, one hour anymore in the crushing horror of what happens when I pick up my drug, when I pick up my food. And, and, and I have other things I've learned over time. So um, why step three? Why a deeper look into step three? Um, I believe it's the key to unlock the door to transformation. And we'll talk a little bit later um, about what I mean by that. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to share a little bit about my story. I'm going to do it in terms of sort of periods of my life. I would then like to take a deeper dive into pages 60 to 63 and just a little bit of the 12 and 12 as it relates to step three. And we'll transition to question and answer. And we'll do that over the next um, 35 or 40 minutes or so. Um, before I move on to some of my story, I want to acknowledge that there's some newcomers in the room. I think there was someone who introduced herself right off the bat. And there's some old timers in the room. There's people who struggled to believe or define a higher power, and there are those who don't struggle at all. And wherever you are, wherever you are coming into this Sunday morning, um, making time to, to listen and work on your program, it's all, it's all good and it's all okay. And you don't have to necessarily define a higher power the way I do. And you don't have to know how you define your higher power now. You're going to hear me talk about my higher power. I use the name God, but that doesn't mean that has to work for you. And the, I challenge us all, myself as well, to be curious about what's going to come up and to learn. And, and then to try to relate back what works for you. So if you are new, welcome. And while I'll be diving deeply into the third step, 
uh, I, I will likely touch on just about every step. And I hope that uh, will be meaningful to you. Okay, so let's start a little bit with my story to just to set some context for me. I group my recovery into these phases. There was third grade, which is about age nine from 1979, until about 12th grade. And that was the period of time in my life where I did not have a 12-step program. I did get into program when I was 18 years old, and you'll hear about that in a moment. But I want to share with you a little bit about what it was like. I say third grade because that is the time when I really began to feel so different. Some of you have heard some of my story before, and you know that I'm an identical twin, and you know the part of my story about how I was on the school bus and um, a boy got up in the front of the bus and started cackling about how fat I was. I wasn't a fat kid, but I was a little bit more, I weighed a little bit more than my identical twin sister, and I didn't understand what he was saying to me, why he was saying it to me, why he wasn't saying it to my sister. And, and I, I felt a burning shame and embarrassment. And if I really try hard, I can feel it today because it was such a profound impact on, on who I was at the time. I let it sink so deep into my soul and I believed him. And amazingly enough, I did the only thing that was the most destructive thing at the time, which is that I told no one, I did nothing. I believed him and I started eating. Now, how insane is that? Someone who is told they're fat, who is so filled with shame, reacts with food. And so from third grade, progressively through my elementary school years, my middle school years, my high school years, I began to try to manage that imprint of utter and complete embarrassment and shame with the very drug <laughs> that actually caused my greatest fear eventually to come true, which is that I ultimately did have a very significant amount of weight on me. My father um, is a compulsive overeater. I grew up with compulsive overeating, workaholism in my family. And so I was sort of primed for the pump um, to pick up an addiction at some point. At first, I was, I tried to control my food, but I always overate. When I got into middle school, I tried to diet and I would have a little bit of success. And then I always overate. In high school, my identical twin sister and I both went on um, Weight Watchers in ninth grade. I lost 25 pounds from an almost normal weight, got excruciatingly thin. And those of you who, by the way, manifest their disease through compulsive undereating or bulimia or other behaviors, this all relates. We're all in this together. We all have different manifestations. There are many of us who um, are compulsive overeaters but there are lots of us who manifest it differently and I want to acknowledge you here too. Um, and I've been there through my compulsive under eating through those early years. My sister and I ate the exact same thing for a year until I couldn't restrict anymore. And then I started binging and starving and binging and starving and binging and starving. 
And for some reason, she could keep up the, the control of it. I couldn't. And then I started getting five pounds more than her and then 10 pounds more than her and then 15 pounds more than her. Always to retreat back to that original imprint of so much shame, so much embarrassment. And then I tried to just control it all away. I had that weird paradox of I would take a bite and then another and then another and then another. Ultimately, to take all those bites in bathroom stalls or to get food in alleyways or to take, put food that I put into the trash and pull it right back out again because I couldn't leave it there. Um, I took those bites in that paradox of all those things that would make me feel better for a second, maybe it was in a minute, only to be followed by the most excruciating pain of how could I do this again? I remember in college, I would go into the lines with all my friends and I'd grab food like everybody else did. I'd put it on my plate. I'd sit down at the table. I'd say I had to go to the bathroom. I'd get right back up again. I'd go pick up food in the line when nobody saw me. I'd go into a bathroom stall and I'd eat it. I'd go back down and I'd sit and eat my food. But it looked like I was supposed to be eating that. The pain of that, and I know so many of you understand that shame, that embarrassment, that overwhelm, that I can't stop, but I want to stop, that it makes me feel better, but it makes me feel worse. I can't put it down and I can't pick it up. All of that led me to eventually being 50 to 6, about 60 pounds more than my identical twin, which I gained in three months in my first um, my first uh, trimester of college. I went back at Thanksgiving. My sister and I separated for the first time, and I was almost 60 pounds more than her, and I wanted to crawl into a hole, a hole. Um so my disease took root, and it's a little bit about what it was like. I can share a lot more, but I want to tell you what happened. I want to go back now to 12th grade. That was in 1988, because the next phase of my recovery was from 1988 until 2014. I got into, yes, I went to college. Yes, all that happened, but I did get into my 12-step program when I was a senior in high school, and I did go into a 12-step oriented treatment center my freshman year of college right after Thanksgiving when I, the shame of going home looking like that was just so horrendous. And I did relapse and I did work over my four years of college um, on my physical abstinence. But I say the, the, the phase of my program from, 19, from 1988 to 2014 was its own phase because that's when I was circling round and round and round and round and round and round and round between steps one, two, and three. The one, I'm going to do one and two. I'm going to get to three. But maybe I didn't do one and two perfectly enough. What is step one? We admitted we were powerless over food, food behaviors, compulsive eating, compulsive undereating in our lives have become unmanageable. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. Step three, made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand God. And I circled round and round and round because I was a perfectionist. And I wanted to make sure I did it just right. And I made some attempts at fourth steps that were biographies. And I made some attempts at starting out on the fourth step. But I could never kind of guess. It says on there, Mr. Brown, and the chart would overwhelm me. And I would just go right back to steps one, two, and three. But somehow, 
I cobbled together what I call my first attempt at physical sobriety. Why? Because I found abstinence. Took me a long time because I did it my way a long time because for a good long while, I didn't want to think that I was as bad as all of you. I didn't want to think that. Maybe I could still hang on to certain foods. Maybe I could still do it a little bit of my way. I wanted to be different because I just didn't want to have to exert beyond that one, two, three dance. But something happened in 2014. Well, let me just say one one moment. Um, there were versions of OA that I did for a lot of years that were deeply focused on abstinence, deeply focused on the tools, deeply focused on making especially my phone calls and going to lots of meetings. And I didn't work the rest of the steps. But, man, my food was put on the scale. I was perfectly abstinent. I went to my meetings, I did my three calls, I did what I needed to do, I had a checklist and I had to do it, and I did it, but I didn't recover. And then in 2014, I kept saying, I have been in this program since 1988. Why am I not, why don't I sound like those recovered people on the line? Now, I think vision, uh, somebody can correct me later if I'm wrong, but I think it came around 2012, and I started listening right after vision came onto the scene, And I just felt like I didn't sound like the recovered people I heard. Why was that? You know how, like, there's certain things that are just, like, in neon lights in front of your eyes and you still don't see it? But I didn't see that I really never worked the steps as they were laid out to be worked. So from 1988 to 2014, I was in some semblance of my version of recovery, um, a lot of white knuckling, a lot of um, control mechanisms that I now know sort of sometimes would take the place of the way I tried to control food, and that kind of helped me out a little bit until it didn't. But in 2014, I don't want to feel the way I felt anymore because I still felt insane. And you're going to hear me talk um, soon about even though – I was mostly, I say mostly because uh, my abstinence still wasn't um, back then what it is today. It was my version of abstinence back then because my abstinence today includes a lot of other things, a lot of subtleties that I didn't acknowledge back then, foods that I could eat in abstinence that I was still eating compulsively even though it looked like it was weighted measured. So I had some quote-unquote physical sobriety, but I wanted to sound like those people who actually were living out the promises. So from 2014 to 2021 was a new phase in my recovery, and I call that the time where I started to become emotionally sober. In 2014, um, I started working with a woman who began to, to help me see that I needed... Um, I needed to take what was being told to me in the big book more seriously. And I also needed to see on page 23, and there is a solution, it says that the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. So I wasn't 60 pounds more than my twin. I still was more than her. 
but I wasn't grasping that this just wasn't all about the fact that I wasn't binging in a bathroom stall anymore and that I didn't sound like some of you who are recovered because I wasn't grasping that this problem centers in my mind and I have to treat it. You know, the, um, just looking at some of my favorite quotes about what I needed to get that I didn't, page 34, here's one. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it, this utter inability to leave it alone no matter how great the necessity or the desire. I can't see what I wrote here, but I think it's something like that. Um, Page 33, if we are planning to stop eating, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday I will be immune to food, to picking up food. So I got that a lot on, on the physical level, but I didn't know that this also was centered in my mind. And if I didn't work these steps to unblock my heart, my soul, my mind, from God, I wasn't going to sound like one of you recovered people. I just wasn't. So I started to work the steps. And I'll tell you, it's different than doing the one, two, three dance, doubling in my version of a fourth step, doing it a little bit my way here and there. It's different. I started to work the steps, and that takes exertion, and it takes some sweat, and it takes some help, and it takes not doing it alone. But I started to work the steps, and I started changing. I started changing. And I started to feel a little bit better. Um, but I, a couple years ago, realized I really didn't feel all better. <laughs> I didn't really feel um, the promises as robustly as I knew they were um, able to be felt. And that's when I realized that I didn't know that if I, I had spiritual sobriety. See, for, for anyone new, my experience over these 36 years in program has taught me that there are rings of recovery that we have an opportunity to, um, to live out. And the first is physical. I get, we get physical recovery, and it actually has to come first. It tells us in the big book, we've got to put down our drugs. We've got to get sober um, so that we can get to work. And the opportunity I found next is that I get to be, to, to find what emotional sobriety is. And we, we learn in step four, made a fearless and searching moral inventory of ourselves, that there are instincts gone awry, the instinct for a social instinct, the instincts for security, and the instincts to be in relationships and sex instincts. There are instincts that we have. And the whole issue here is that they go awry. And then we have emotions that are all over the place. We're going to read really quickly, um, not that long from now, in, in 60 to 63, that we're like a, I mean, we're like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. We, we're all over the place. And that doesn't necessarily stop just because I put down my the, the drug. It's not about that. It is just the gateway entry ticket into the rest of recovery because the work, the work really begins at steps four. It goes from steps four through nine. And if I don't do that work, 
if I don't do that work, I, th- there's no way to receive the, um, the promises and the benefits of this. But I didn't want to feel so emotionally erratic. I didn't want to feel so fearful. So you heard um, um, some of my story as it related to what I used to do with food. But I want to talk for just a second about what I used to do with my emotions and what I still do, but I know how to treat it now. Walking into a room and feeling fearful, walking into a room and comparing myself to others, walking into a room and um, I could take one look at someone and be terrified of them right off the bat, walking into a room and cutting myself off from the gifts that I truly, truly do have and feeling absolutely no connection to them at all, feeling like an empty vessel, walking into a room and feeling some how perpetually and continually inadequate. Are human beings supposed to walk into a room and feel inadequate? No, they're not. I have learned that they are not. I have learned from my sponsor, I do not need to engage with every thought in my head. I have learned that I do not need to engage with every emotion that I feel. They're feelings. But what happens is that I have a um, I have a thought, and then that thought interrupts the way I'm supposed to walk into a room, which is just to be free, to be the person that God had designed me to be. And then when that thought interrupts the natural course of who I'm supposed to be, I get a feeling. And then when that feeling, that emotion takes over, I used to not understand that I was able to have a feeling without becoming it. And I would just become the feeling. And then when you've become your fear and you've become your inadequacy and you've become your despair and you've become your sadness, life just looks really, really different. And then I just get further and further and further away from the dock, the dock where my true purpose, my true reason for being here and where all the joy is and I get further and further away. Now, I want to just acknowledge that I was given a gift and the gift was that this, um, this life-saving tube was put around my waist when I was 18. I'm 53 now. So for more than half my life, even as I strayed away from the dock, I did have a ring around my waist with a cord that tethered me back because I knew there was a way out. There was a way out. What was that movie? Is it called The Truman Show? Remember where um, Jim Carrey didn't know that his entire life was being filmed on camera? And then at the very, very end, he became, he be, became aware, and then he, well, the way he gets out, he sees in the distance there was a door, like up a funky, you know, escalated ladder type thing. And he knew he could get out of the TV set if he walked up those stairs and out that door. And we'll soon talk about, I'll use that analogy, um, hopefully I'll remember when I start talking um, specifically about step three, because that's really what it's like. And I had that door in front of me pretty much my whole adult life. But, see, I didn't always swim back to the dock. I didn't always. I knew the door was there, 
but I still had to make the decision to swim. And if I stayed tethered, which is easy to do if you work steps one, two, and three, and you're in the program and you go to meetings and you call other people and you even put down the food and you white knuckle your way through and you think somehow you're abstinent, which, is, which was me, and I'm tethered and I got the ring around my waist, I didn't swim back to the dock to get up on it and up out that door of this fabricated world where I think during the time where I'm not physically sober that that's it, the problem. During the time when I'm not emotionally sober, that all my emotions are, 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 are real, like me, meaning that that was just a set. I was swimming around becoming all of those emotions I just described because I was on a set. It wasn't what I am meant to experience in this world, and I truly believe we are meant to be joyous, happy, and free. That doesn't mean we do not have tragedy, calamity, issues, hardships. No, but it says in our big book that we can meet calamity with serenity. I mean, that, 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 that's something that just seems so foreign to me. So I began to work the steps in 2014, and I worked them all the way to the end of step 12, and then I would go back and I'd do it again. And my sponsor in this program today would say, you know what, let's do a deeper step four. And there was a couple times where I went back and I did it, I did it again. We hit step four if we're doing this program correctly every single day. Every day we do four, really four through 12. But when we're in the, the heart of it, we do it because we have a 10th step that says we take continuous inventory, continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Sometimes we can do that real quick, and sometimes we got to go back and kind of pull out our dart and do it the whole deep four-step uh, four way. But something changed, and I truly began to, at the very least, know that I did not have to become my emotions, that I could have them, that I could pick up the phone and I could tell a fellow or my sponsor or listen to one of you speak on the line every single day and talk about how you were feeling and how you were applying the steps. And every day the disentanglement would get a little stronger and the knot pulled out a little more. So what happened in 2021, just a couple of years ago, I began to wonder why there's still so much fear. Why am I still so scared? Now, I, did, I know I don't have to become my fear, but I'll tell you what. When I turned 50 a few years ago, um, at first I was so excited because I defined that as being kind of a jubilee time, which is what my faith says it is. And I was very excited despite the fact that it was COVID and I did some things around my 50th birthday that I would never have been able to do in my entire life had it not been for this 12-step program. I wrote an essay every day, 50 days prior to my 50th birthday, about every year of my life and what I learned. And then on my 50th birthday, I set a time with eight different people to talk about some of the eight different things that came out of all that learning. And one of the things that I began to also uh, acknowledge is that um, I'm scared a lot and how I don't want to live my jubilee time 50 to 120 in so much fear I want to be doing God's work I want to be of service I want to be my strongest self I've been untied that knot and 
I could feel it was like in front of me. If I just pulled on the thread more, the whole knot, this whole knot that I'd been living with in third grade, it could just come undone. And I could feel those promises and I could sound like a recovered person truly. But I realized, yes, physical sobriety I had. Yes, emotional sobriety starting to come more and more. But for me, spiritual sobriety is about a deeper reliance upon my higher power that I am, I am in a kind of rhythm and devotion that even when I get a little bit far out on the dock in that tube again because I'm using some of my own will, gosh, I swim right back real fast because I have enough order, um, good orderly direction in my life that I am able to pause again, hear, and listen. So this actually brought me to another 12-step program that I won't talk about because um, as we're here to talk about how the impact of, of my compulsive overeating has affected my life and my recovery. But I noted that if I didn't quite, and it has a lot to do with what we're going to read right now as I move on to, to share with you some things about step three, has a lot to do with why I have attached it's never too late, but it's later than you think, a deeper look at step three. It has a lot to do with what is said in 6063. That is the expression of the disease that is, was rampant in my life that brought me back to my knees when I saw if I don't truly get to that point. And you know what? I went to a 12-step program for this, but the truth is this big book tells us it affects us all, how we become the director. And I began to untangle a little bit what complying with working the steps means versus um, surrendering so much more deeply so that I was in a place of reliance. Not, it's, it's so different. It's, it's subtle, but it's actually not so subtle. But in, in getting it, it, it for me, the, the subtlety of it kept me in a lot of compliance for a long, long time. But um, I actually found, I, I read a little bit of uh, Harry Tebow. Harry Tebow was a psychiatrist um, who was actually Bill's psychiatrist. And he treated a lot of alcoholics, studied alcoholism, from a medical standpoint, that he was one of the first. We owe a lot to Harry Tebow. We owe a lot to Dr. Silkworth. Uh, for anyone who is new, take a look at the doctor's opinion in the big book, um, the core text of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you'll hear about the doctor that for the first time in the history of the world um, grasped and brought to the medical industry and to all of us through validation that our, our quote-unquote alcoholism, our our addiction was not just a weakness inside of us, but an actual malady um, of the mind and body. It was not something that it, that it was something that affected us uh, physically. It wasn't just about the mind. Actually, we know that it centers in our mind, but it used to be thought of as something of great weakness. And we learned from him that we have a physical allergy as well. We cannot ingest the substances the processes, the behaviors that will set off the allergic reaction and cause us keep doing, to keep doing what we're doing, unlike normal people who just stop doing things that make them feel bad. But we don't. We just do more of it. 
So Dr. Harry Tebow is another doctor who I have tremendous gratitude for because he um, really studied why do the 12 steps work, and he found that when someone truly, truly surrenders, there is like a conversion switch inside that gets flipped. And all of a sudden, when you go to a surrender, which is what step one is all about, and then you take step two, which is about hope and belief that you within all of what's in there is not enough to bring about the arrest of this disease, there's this switch that happens. And we turn inside from all of our negativity, despair, to something that looks like positivity. It's an extraordinary thing. And that positivity releases, I believe, within the pharmacy that lives within us, some aspect of energy that allows us to want. It creates a want to go forward. Now, step three is the passageway. And I want to turn now what I'm, now that you have some context for me and for these realms of, of recovery between physical, emotional, and spiritual. In fact, I think I did a special edition several years back about emotional sobriety. This was before 2021, and that was a lot about what I was thinking about. And now I think a lot about spiritual sobriety, and that's where I am today. Okay, let's turn to a deeper look at step three. I wish I could see all of you right now and pause and get your thoughts and comments, but um, that's not our format. So um, I guess I'll pause and just ask you, as I transition out to take a look at our big book, to think within yourself, to bring into this, this uh, look at the big book, bring something that you took from what I just said as we transition now to take a look at the book. Because what matters is, yes, you're hearing my story and how what matters in, in my own application of it, but what makes far more difference and what is far more important for you is to identify in and then take a look as we go to the book what matters to you from your story because yours might just be different than mine. So just, just to get oriented for a moment, especially for anyone who's new, if you take a look and if you have a big book in front of you, pull it out, but if you just take a look at the table of contents, you'll see that here's how the book is arranged. Step one is about 60 pages across four chapters. Bill's story, well, the doctor's, the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution. More about alcoholism um, is kind of both. It, it's step one and step two a bit. We agnostics is really uh, step two. Okay, so all of these chapters are steps one and two. 60 pages. Uh, chapters if you add in um, the doctor's opinion. Steps 3 through 11, interestingly, is really just 30 pages across two chapters, how it works and into action. And step 12 is another six, around 60 pages across five chapters. So it's sort of interesting to, um, to understand, like, the importance of steps 1 and 2, the importance of step 12. There's the majority of the book is devoted to that. And step three through 11, it's, it's like, it's like um, climbing up the ladder to the top of the slide 
and and then you slide down between three three and eleven a little bit um according to the fact that there's thirty pages um related to this so I wanted to talk about step three because I think that step three is where I have fallen down. Now, why would that be? How are we supposed to work step three in the ideal world? Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as I understand God. I'm going to go to the book in a minute, but I just want to um, explain something. Step three should take it can take less than a, than 60 seconds, right? The book tells us um, to say the third step prayer. It's a decision. Um, and what is it a decision to do? The decision is basically to move on to the rest of the steps. That's the decision we're making. It says in the third step prayer, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Um, relieve me of the bondage of self Wait a minute, so that I may better do thy way, will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help with thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. Well, what are my difficulties? My difficulties are um, the core defects of character that we address in our fourth step, selfishness, self-seeking, fear, dishonesty, and anger, and resentment. And then everything else sort of stems from that. So we kind of get a look at the difficulties that were being asked to be removed, and then we go on in the fourth step to, to, in a prescription of, 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 of actions that are there to help us between four really and, and um, seven to remove some of those difficulties, and then we move on to make amends to, to others. It's a decision, but, you know, Harlan has told that story. If there are three frogs and they're sitting on lily pads, and one of them decides to jump off. How many frogs are still sitting on the lily pad? Well, there's still three frogs sitting on the lily pad, right? All that happened, they didn't take any action. He tells another story. If you're going to go um, on a driving trip <clears throat> four hours from your home, and you pack up your car, and you do everything that you need to do, you, get, you have gas in the car, and you have food packed, and if you're us, you've packed all the food that you need. But if you don't ever start driving and moving towards where you're supposed to go, you just don't take the trip. So if we are constantly swimming around between one, two, and three, and we make a decision in three, but then we don't take the journey of four through 12, we're not going to recover because we're just not jumping off the lily pad. We have not done anything yet. So step three is a decision. But it's a decision basically to move on between to work four through 12 every day the rest of my life. Um, okay, so let's go now to 60 to 63. Actually, um, before that even, at the beginning of how it works, we have a few pages that are going to get us ready for step three. Um, it talks again, it, it sort of actually reminds us that we have to be rigorously honest. Um, it threatens us a little bit, right? It says, rarely have we seen a person fail. Here, this is hope, who has a uh, person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover, people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. We're starting. 
to hear a little bit about um, what Melanie spoke about at the beginning of that sense of urgency. Um, there's no easier, softer way we learn. And then it finally gives us a whole, the, the pathway forward, right? Because we're about to make a decision. So then it tells us what the steps are that we're about to decide to do. It says we can't take half measures. And then we, it summarizes basically steps one and two. One and two get summarized. Why? Because if we don't utterly surrender with tremendous honesty that we are powerless in step one, we admitted we were powerless. If we think there is one more thing left that we can do, we're going to do it because we're not going to want to put our drug down. And if we don't, if we've, if we've surrendered, but then we don't have the hope and belief that that power exists somewhere, it's just not in me. Well, then how am I going to make any decision? I have to have that foundation, which begins to be faith in step three and willingness. I have to, to find that predicated upon a foundation of surrender and then, a, and then a belief and hope that there is something. It's just not in me. So then we have these uh, letters A, B, and C. So we have to get to the point that we were alcoholic, that we are compulsive overeaters or undereaters or whatever we do and could not manage our own lives. Now, that managing our own lives is what I'm going to focus on shortly. That probably no human power could have relieved our addiction and that God could and would if he were sought. Being convinced we were at step three, which is that I decided to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as we understood him. Just what do we mean by that and what do we do? So here's where I've fallen down. Because what I thought the decision meant in the past was that I had to put down my food. But here, in the next page, it doesn't say anything about putting down the drug. It says something about putting something else down. And this is where I feel that step three, which is supposed to be done in a minute, it's a decision to move on with the rest of the steps. But if it's a decision to move on with the rest of the steps without grasping what it's telling us must also be done here the rest of the steps also which is what happened for me aren't going to be as deep and profound as if i get what it's telling me okay so it says the first requirement is to be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success on that basis we are almost always in collision with something or someone else even though our motives are good most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players. So right now it is saying absolutely nothing about what I am putting in my mouth. Nothing. It's saying that I'm trying to be the director, and it's saying that I'm trying to arrange things. If ever, only everybody would stay put, including himself, life would be wonderful. So then it talks about all these things that I try to do to control my life. Sometimes I can be considerate and patient while I'm doing it. Sometimes I can be mean and egotistical. What happens? So it doesn't come off very well. He begins to think freedom right, and he decides to exert himself more. So this, while I have been working the steps for 36 years now in these concentric circles, now that I have been decided to, to go very head-on more deeply into what does it mean to spiritually recover, I realized that I just kept trying to exert 
This is not about food. Food's down. But the exertion of my will of trying to arrange everyone in my family, of trying to arrange circumstances, of trying to arrange who's in the room so I don't have to feel like that little girl, the one that was so scared all the time because I'd go into the room and you'd look a certain way or you'd say a certain thing or you came from a certain work environment or school environment or anything that I would then use as a weapon to wield against myself and to feel inadequate. So I didn't quite get that the third step, it's saying right here that I've got to get that my exertion, my exertion is a problem to try to control everything outside of me. Is he not a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if he only manages well? Well, this back in 2021 started coming out to me with neon lights that I finally saw. I am trying to manage well as a way to, to that, that had become a crutch blocking me from the best form of my recovery. Isn't it not evident to all everyone else? Well, I can tell you this. My family um, <laughs> certainly noticed. Um, and then it starts to go into the fact that the actor self-centered, egocentric, as people like to call it nowadays, and it gives some examples of that. Um, selfishness, self-centeredness on page 62. That, we think, is the root of our troubles. It's not the substance. And it's not managing well either. That's, that's as much of, um, of, a, of, of, of a process addiction as my substance addiction was. But selfishness and self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. Does that mean I'm a horrible, bad person? No. So many of us become selfish or self-centered and do self-seeking things. Not because we're horrible, you know, narcissistic people. I have found, you know, in the fourth step, when we take a look at our selfishness, self-seeking, dishonesty, and fear, right? And we take a look at our resentment. Well, I have found that it is truly fear, which is what is causing my delusion and the dishonesty. And the delusion and dishonesty is driving that selfishness. And that selfishness is driving the self-seeking behaviors, and then I'm trying to manage well. Our troubles are of our own making. They arise out of ourselves, and the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot. All these pages prior to the fact that we get to the third step prayer is all about making sure that, yes, we have taken steps one and two, but that we truly grasp as we're making this decision that this isn't just about the fact that I can't stop eating. This is about how I want to run life so that I feel all of you so that I feel a certain way. This is the how and the why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, we had to decide that here, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, now this is it. Next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. He is the father. We are his children. Please don't get caught up with any of these words that just rub you. You can you get the essence of it and, and then translate what that means into your concept of a higher power. And here's what Melanie referenced at the beginning. Remember when she talked about 
the foundation stone, the cornerstone. This concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we pass to freedom. That is why step three, if not properly taken in the second, and all it takes is that to make a decision. But if we don't pass through the arch with the keystone in the right place, we have it a little bit of a half twist off because we think that we're making a decision to, and it's all about food, we're going to miss it. Because it really is about what this, these, these words before the, the third step prayer are about the fact that I want to manage it. I want to quickly take you to page 40 in the 12 and 12, 12 and 12, because it's going to hit it a different way. In page 40 of the 12 and 12, it says, then it is explained that other steps of the AA program can be practiced with success when step three is given a determined and, um, and persistent trial. This statement may surprise newcomers who have experienced nothing but constant deflation and a growing conviction that human will is of no value whatsoever. So that is bringing us to the point that, okay, my will doesn't work, right? I'm totally deflated. And this says that it needs a persistent and determined trial. So, they have become persuaded, and rightly so, that many problems besides, I'm going to put in food, will not yield to a headlong assault. Many problems besides the drug, many problems besides alcohol, besides food. It's not the alcohol and food. It's saying we've tried a headlong assault powered by the individual alone to treat everything else in our lives. But now it appears that there are certain things which only the individual can do. And it's not the headlong assault of all the things I want to manage. All by himself, here's what I can do. And in the light of his own circumstances, he needs to develop the quality of willingness. And when he acquires willingness, he is the only one who can make the decision to exert himself. Trying to do this is an act of his own will. And all of the 12 steps require sustained and personal exertion to conform their principles. So step three is about the alignment of my will in the right way. And I've learned that what my will is, my will is my thinking, and my life is my action. So if we read this a different way, when he acquires the ability to act, willingness, he is the only one who can make this decision. It's a decision to act. Step three is a decision to act. And then when we, um, here, our whole trouble had been the misuse of willpower. So let's say that in a different way. Our whole trouble had been the mis use of our ability to take actions. We had tried to bombard our problems with it. We had bombarded our problems with actions that were off a little bit, a half twist in the wrong direction. We, tr we, ha we, we had tried to bombard our problems with it instead of attempting to bring it into agreement with God's intention for us. I know I need to start wrapping up, um, but it says what we do. In all times of emotional disturbance or indecision, we don't start acting and directing and controlling and working more and more and more and bombarding the rest of my problems with my misplaced actions. Here's what it says to do. In all kinds of emotional disturbance or indecision, we can pause, ask for quiet, and in the stillness simply say, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. 
thy will not mine be done. Step three is like, um, you know, like uh, the buses that have that like accordion sort of like middle in between the front part of the bus and the back part of the bus, and it makes going around corners a little bit easier in the bend of the bus. Step three to me is that. Step three is this like accordion sort of like middle between the first two steps and really steps four through 12. And if, if I walk through that passageway in just the right way, I'm going through, I've made a decision to begin to stop exerting myself. Because here's what it says, you guys. If you go to page 63, and this is before the third step prayer. It says, as we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. These are promises. We call them the third step promises, but I kind of think they're the first and second step promises. It's as. It's a process. It's the as we felt power come because we've just come to believe in a power greater than ourselves. Now it says we're at step three. And then we say the third step prayer. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help. Thy power, thy love, and thy way of life may I do thy will always. And then it tells us that we can take that step with someone else. We can take it with ourselves so long as we express the idea and voice it without reservation. But it's only a beginning, and if honestly and humbly made, an effect, sometimes a great one was felt at once. And next, we launched out in a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is a personal health training. Step three is simple. It's a decision to work steps four and on. It's a decision to, to transform our actions. The will, that, that's our life, right? And to transform our thinking, and that's our willingness, and to align it properly. And the misunderstanding of steps is that it doesn't include all that other stuff, the bombardment of my problems with my exertion, my control, my direction. I, um, I, I sometimes feel like I may be one of the most fortunate people on earth because I found this program when I was 18. But the course of my 36 years in recovery have put me in a place now where I know that part of my work in the world is to help um, imprint on the mind, hearts, and souls of others that you don't need to wait 36 years to get into your truest sense of recovery, which is about physical, emotional, and spiritual recovery. We're supposed to be happy, joyous, and free. And I want to move ahead. Yeah, there's days I'm going to have fear. There's days I am. And there's days I'm going to be confused. But it says when I get to that place, what I just read from the 12 and 12, in all places where I'm indecisive or I have an emotion that feels just not so good, I say the serenity prayer. And I have to do this every single day. Every day my sponsor, and I am so grateful to my sponsor. I have a sponsor in this program. I have a sponsor in my other program. And I, um, I can't say enough that if you're trying to do it on your own, 
don't. Don't. There are there have been times across the course of my 36 years in program, I, w- I told myself I would not leave the day without a sponsor, new sponsor, or whatever it was. There's times I will check in with sponsors during the day, and my sponsor in this program has me read 60 to 63 every single day. Why? Because it said it has to be a persistent try. I have to remind myself. <laughs> I forget. I forget. I have to remind myself to surrender in step one. I have to remind myself to believe that there's something bigger than me. and It's not in me. I have to read 60 to 63 to remind myself of the trap that just because my food's down doesn't mean my trying to be the director is down. And upon that foundation, I can work steps four through 12. And what a joy, a joy to feel the journey. It's a trudge sometimes. But we hold hands, we keep trudging. I I pray for all of us that we each pick up exactly what we need to, the step we're on, we backtrack and we shore up what where there's cracks, and we move forward and trudge together to feel not just the blessing of these what I will call steps one and two and three promises that I just read, but that we feel the promises in their fullest sense so that we can live from this day forward to the rest of our lives, please God, to 120 in our healthiest selves with the joy of living not just far away from the dock, but right standing on top of it. Certain we are doing what we're meant to do in the world. Thank you so much for listening. And um, with that, I will stop. Hey, Cheryl A., what a magnificent teacher you are. Your experience, coupled with this textbook, yeah, stunning combination with of work and spiritual process there. It's self-evident. Thank you so very much for that, Cheryl. We're going to get Cheryl's contact information at the conclusion of this meeting, so don't exit one minute before we get that. It'll be at the very, very end after the recording has stopped. The share ID number for today, Sunday 17th, 2023, is 20944, 20,944, so that you can go back and take a listen to those points that were made here today. You might want to need those for your for your notes and finishing up a little bit. So the lines are now open for questions. If you have a question for Cheryl, please unmute your phone by pressing star one on your phone keypad. Offer your first name, the first initial of your last name, and your state. And then immediately after asking your question, please, please press star one. Who would like to ask a question this morning? Polly B. Polly B. Dana P. P. Somebody J. LJ. Something, say it one more time with the J. It's breaking up. LJ, just my initials L and J. Just LJ. Okay, great. Got you this time. Thank you. Pete B. I hear that one. Kathy B. Kathy D, and I hear Morgan, and I'm going to stop with that because of the time. But so it's Kathy D, and then uh, Morgan. Okay, let's start with Paula B, please, followed by Dana. Thank you, Melanie, for your service, and thank you, Cheryl, for a great talk. Polly B. Polly B, would you press star one real quick again? Did you hear anything? 
No, just that hello, you were starting that part. So go ahead, start with your okay. question. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Melanie. Uh, Cheryl, my question is, how do you guide a sponsee through steps two and three if they do not yet have a personal experience of their own higher power or if they pass? You know, I think um, everybody's got to be where they are. And um, someone's concept of a higher power, you know, it says, I guess, um, there's if someone's really struggling with it, they don't really need to have um, absolute certainty on what that means for them. I think... It says in the big book, we just need willingness. It's a coming to believe. So when it says came to believe, if a person is, um, is, is willing to believe that there is a power outside of themselves that can support them, I think it's all that's necessary. First of all, I forgot to thank you for the question, Paula. So, so thank you for that. And I think it is something that's so important because we get so I in, in, in the past, and I see it in others as well, we can get so hung up that it has to be done perfectly. And it really doesn't. We have to have enough of surrender in step one, and we have to have just enough to open the door to believe at the very least that it is not within me to cure this thing. A lot of people just start out with their concept um, of a higher power as just being the group. It talks about somewhere in, in our literature that there are really two powers, the one of God as we understand it, and the other is the power of the group. So I think the fact that someone is willing to show up to the step process is the beginning of a concept of a higher power because it's saying this is a process that is bigger than me that will lead me up that path. Oh, I forgot to come back to my uh, my Truman Show analogy, um, but um, that to, to, to move up there. and. I think a lot of love and acknowledgement of um, just self-compassion and through this process, we go back and we like, we shore up um, what's cracked. But if a person is just able and willing to acknowledge that the power isn't within them and to begin with any concept that they can work with even if it's the, the the power of the group they can work on it over time and and it's just fine um so that's how i would answer that thank you polly b for your question thank next you. up is dana p dana p and that will be followed by lj good morning good morning thank you melanie dana p in california my apologies if i stepped on toes and Cheryl, <laughs> i love what you said uh, finally I don't know what it was. And my question, I have two questions uh, that were related. Um, the first one around the first step, and you shared a little bit about the physiologic and genetic component um, to this disease of compulsive overeating and or I've heard uh, about an anorexia gene. Um, <laughs> it just, I don't know why when you said it, it just really sunk in um, to me this morning. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about your relationship to that in terms of your identical twin sister um, and how your relationship is with her now. Um, that's what I'm asking. Thank you so much, and I'll pass. Sure. Um, 
so my twin sister also um, struggled uh, in, in certain ways, and there were certain things that we shared. She she went a different pathway, and thank God um, is uh, is doing extraordinarily well. Um, you know, it, it says that there's there's the um, there's different kind of drinkers, right? There's different kinds of compulsive overeaters. Um, there's the moderate, there's the hard drinker, and then there's the real alcoholic, the real compulsive overeater. And it says in the big book that there is a point at which we pass into addiction where I have learned over these years that there truly really only is one treatment plan, which is the 12 steps for me, for me. I, um, if, if there is a real, real um, alcoholic eater out there and I passed that point, and the spirit, uh, having a spiritual awakening was absolutely necessary, is absolutely necessary for me to sustain my recovery and to be in a recovered state. Um, so I do not think that my, my sister had sort of passed that point of no return, and there were other things that she was able to utilize um, to treat that. My, my sister and I have an extraordinary relationship today that I never really would have thought um, could be because we have a kind of freedom with each other. Um, we are extremely close, extremely open with each other, and vulnerable with each other. The process of four through nine was a treatment plan. and. My sister, of course, is the closest person to me. She knows that, you know, much about the 12 steps and is so amazed at the impact it's had on my life. And we continue to grow and share and learn together. Um, the fact that Dr. Silkworth told us that there's a physical allergy, I don't know that I said the word genetic, but I certainly believe that there's a genetic component to it all. Um, but I do think that this is a spectrum disorder and it affects different people in different ways. And the, those of us on wherever we are on that spectrum, it sometimes requires a different level and layer of spiritual treatment. And so I know there's a lot more questions, so I'll stop there, but I hope that's largely and sufficiently answered your question. Thank you very much. Dana P. from California. Next up is LJ from Maine, followed by Pete B. LJ, your question, please. Yes. Um, as a new person, I'm apparently stuck on step two, and I'm just wondering, without already believing in a higher power can restore me to sanity, um, how do I remove the block of, like, the stubborns or, like, I don't want to do what God wants me to do? Like, I want to want to do that, but it's I don't trust it yet. How, how do I get past that? First of all, it's LJ, right? Yes. I think it was, yeah. So, so welcome. Um, LJ, do you have a sponsor yet? I did, and I got stuck on step two, and now she doesn't answer my text or my calls. Well, one of the first things I want to encourage you to do is to um, find another sponsor right away. Um, don't let your program be driven 
by what someone else does or does not do. Go after your program. Go after your recovery and find someone else to work with. If anyone is sponsoring in a way that um, is somehow, you know, impatient of someone's process, um, there's lots of people. Sometimes people don't click. Um, but what I would say is you want to work the – when I have been stuck, I don't want to tell you what to do, but when I have been stuck, what I have needed to do is to work where I am. But the worst thing I can do, I can tell you what not to do, is to stop. Find any part within you that can acknowledge reliance on something that's not you. So here you are showing up at a meeting. You're open, you're curious, you're, you're learning. You're, that, there's an aspect of um, acknowledging that there's something out there to get. There's something out there to learn. There's something out there. Develop relationships with people. Sometimes just the mere fact of working with a sponsor can help the, the, the unblock that, um, that part of you. And know that it doesn't have to be perfect. Steps one and two are about admitting what I am doing. We admit we were powerless. I can't do anything. I can't read a book. I can't take a course. Uh, a psychiatrist, psychologist are not going to work for me anymore. Um, I can't um, go to a seminar. It's not going to fix it, right? We get honest with ourselves. We get honest and we surrender. And the, the essence of step two is come to believe that there's something else out there that's going to help me. In the, in the purest essence, that's what it is. So if you don't have your, um, the concept of your higher power developed, it'll come. Just keep going. Work where you are and keep going. If you need to go back and shore something up, if you need to go deeper, you will commit yourself to moving forward, not staying back and doing the one, two, three dance waiting for it to all come clear. Be gentle with yourself. Let it unfold and just keep moving. There, there are questions people can ask. There's stuff to read that may release some of that confusion or stubbornness, as you called it. But just keep going. Work through it. Um, and get yourself into that decision to move forward, you know, and that, that, uh, that part of the bus that connects one to the other. Because things, things start to unravel. Just keep pulling on the thread. Just keep pulling on it, and the knot will loosen up, and eventually things will get more clear. That's my experience. Thank you very much, LJ, for your question this morning. Next up with a question would be Pete B., followed by Kathy D. Pete, you're next. Thank you, Melanie, for your service. Appreciate it. My name is Pete B. I'm a compulsive overeater, and I'm recovered today by God's grace and mercy. Uh, Cheryl, thank you for that was really well thought out, eloquent, deep, and heavy, and I really got a lot out of it. And um, so I was, I was, I have two questions. The first one was you, you talked about the traumatic experience you had on the bus when you were young with the person who, who basically made fun of you. Um, how do you know, did, did the emotions drive you to the food, or did the phenomena drive you to the food? I'm just curious from your perspective and looking back at it in hindsight what it was. And then the second question is, and I really appreciate you bringing up so much of the third step in the AA 12 and 12. And in the AA 12 and 12, it says the more we become willing to depend on a higher power, the more independent we actually are. So can you talk about what independence 
as a as a as a virtue or an ideal looks like for you? Because you talked a lot about how you know your 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 reliance on a sponsor and all that other stuff. But I'm just curious about what independence looks like for you. Sure. Um, I'll start with the first part, and if I forget the second, which I don't think I will, but you'll remind me. Um, it's a really interesting question, Pete. Um, thank you for it, the opportunity to think about that. What came first, the emotions or phenomenon of craving? You know how um, there's stories of alcoholics that we read um, where it says the moment they picked up alcohol, they – they knew that they were an alcoholic. So I don't know if anyone's ever listened to Franklin Williams. He's an alcoholic um, who's passed away. He uses his first and last name. He's really worth listening to. And he just, um, he shared his story about the first time that he picked up alcohol and he blacked out. First time. And so what came first? The phenomenon of craving for him or the emotion? I mean, I guess for him, Maybe it was the emotion. Maybe he wanted to be included. Maybe he wanted, you know, and, 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 and so he picked it up. And then he found out, oh, my gosh, I am an alcoholic. I think it was kind of like that for me. I think that um, I think that I had my one of my first incredibly painful traumas. Now, I realize this trauma may not be as bad as some of the childhood traumas of others. Um, I've learned to respect my childhood traumas, even though, because I've, I've discounted them for so many years because it wasn't um, as obvious a trauma. But I've learned the concept of something called developmental trauma. And I believe that developmental trauma, which, by the way, that boy went on to bully me for three years, um, third through sixth grade, everywhere I went, in the hallways, um, he bullied me, made fun of me. I, I, I lived in constant embarrassment and shame for three years, real developmental years of my, of my youth. And I think the emotion came first, Pete, but I think that the disease was really right there because it, it, that's what I went to to cope right away. I think I had the same experience as Franklin Williams. I didn't pass out or I didn't even binge at first. I became absolutely focused on food, though, for comfort. And then it progressed and progressed and progressed and progressed and progressed. And then I went through very quickly the phases of being the moderate eater and then the hard eater. And then I passed the point of no return eventually. Um, and, and that's where my sister didn't, but I did. I did. And so I think experiencing myself and observing others in my family who are compulsive readers. And of course I had that um, experience watching my dad. I just think it was like, I think it was right there. So I hope that answers that. Um, the question about how I am sort of living more independently as a result of my dependence on a power greater than myself. Here's how that plays out for me. Because I, now that I have been working so hard to not exert me as the director over and over and over and over and over again, um, I have created space in my life 
for time with God, for pause. Every day I get up. It's miraculous, by the way. It is utterly and completely miraculous that I wake up at the same time early every single day. It is miraculous. This is something I struggled with my whole life, and I do that today. I am becoming someone, by the way, who goes to bed around the same time at night because today one of the things that I do that is so important is to rest. As a person who has been directing my life, it manifests through lack of sleep. And I have found that one of the most important times that I meet with God is in my sleep. I do it in the morning when I protect my prayer meditation time. I do it when I pause throughout the day to breathe or do a 10-step or do a pause. I do it when I call my sponsors. I do it when I connect others. I'm pausing. I'm, let, I'm, I'm pausing to receive information, and then I'm able to discern what in the hell am I supposed to do with the next minute, hour, and day of my life? What am I supposed to do? And then amazingly enough, when I protect the morning, my sleep, my pausing, I have an accumulation of clarity that allows me to discern, oh, this is my priority. For uh, sponsoring a different program, I have to send my priorities every single day. What are my priorities for the day? And it's taken a long time to even know what a priority is because by nature, everything's a priority. Mean, I mean, I have like way too many priorities to fit into a day. So the sense of independence has come as I've been able to untangle me being the director as described in 60 to 63 from me being the person who's doing what they're meant to do in the world. And I become so independent, Pete, because I now know what a priority is. I'm not enslaved. I'm becoming. I'm done in some ways, and I'm recovering and continually in that area. But the less I am enslaved to my constant list, to my constant sense that I've got to pr produce and check more off and check more off and check more off, I'm starting to want to draw. I, I, I have a talent in art I've never explored or, or do certain other things. That is the most, I can't explain how independent that makes my mind because I'm not enslaved to my agenda. Um, I can keep at it if, if that's not enough or we can talk afterwards, but I will think about that more. But I, I, I really think it's about having discernment, getting done what I'm supposed to do as a foundation, and then knowing, too, when I get to show up and say, oh, this is not a time to produce more, to check something off the list more. It's time to choose because I now have to play. Play is, is one of the priorities. Play, play time, being present to be with my kids and other things. So there is so much more independence because I am able to discern um, what is a must, what is a, a like, you know, what I, I just have more discernment about my, my, my time, I guess. So I hope that answers it enough. Thank you very much, Pete, for your question this morning and your thorough answer of that. Uh, Time has run out for us this morning. So, Kathy D. and Morgan, if you would please grab up Cheryl's telephone number, and then you can ask your question privately at another time. Thank you for that consideration. 
And thank you all to, to the questions from this morning. And we're going to close with our usual fashion at a vision for you by reading from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you'll surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep 